This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Hi, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Kutnick, and my co-host today is Kelly Van Beek, one of our ambassadors. Hi, Kelly. Good morning, Carly. How are you? Not too bad. Can you give us a little bit about where you're at and uh, how long you've been an ambassador? I have been an ambassador since early 2021. I was in the cohort that started then and signed up for another round here in early 2023. I'm located in Wisconsin in the Madison area and it is a pretty lovely fall-esque morning here. It's like our first really cool morning and you can start to start to look forward to the next couple months we have on tap of all of the fall activities we enjoy so much. Yeah, I Colorado has been having a couple like it's starting to get a lot cooler at night. And it's really, it's really enjoyable. You had a couple of events just uh, uh, kick off over the last month or so. Would you like to uh, share with our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, so we hosted two women focused wing shooting nights at a local sportsman's club. Both of the nights had to that point in the summer, the hottest day, they were the hottest days of the year. So one was in July and one was in August. The one in August was particularly brutal. The heat index was like over 105, I think when we, when we started that evening. And then uh, furthermore, that night also gave us a severe thunderstorm morning. So all of the stuff we had out got soaked, but um, it cleared up around, I don't know, it must've cleared up around six and then we had another steady trickle of ladies that still came. We had over 30 registered for that August event and around 20 registered for the July event. So we were pretty pumped just to get that much interest. A lot of new shooters, people who had never shot a firearm before, or people who had um, very limited experience shooting firearms. So it was really great to see women progress from, they maybe started a stationary target and they would progress into shooting just a straightaway clay throw to traditional trap to some of them even tried skeet some of them tried um five stand which is kind of more like sporting clays um and they just the smiles on their faces and how empowered they felt how comfortable they felt to be there and shoot with other ladies was was just awesome to see we got really great feedback um folks would say something like no egos here like you know it was just so fun to not necessarily keep score and to have people cheer for you when you did actually connect on a clay um that was just it just, they were great evenings. And I, I, I think we'll do them again next year. There was so much, so much interest. People were hoping we were going to do more this year, even. Um, so we're encouraging folks to, you know, become a member at the club, form a ladies, uh, trap shooting team for their upcoming fall, um, 
trap league. So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we did them. Major shout out to the, to our partners, Wisconsin DNR and Pheasants Forever for helping put those on and North Bristol Sportsman's Club, of course. Awesome. Yeah. We really appreciate those partnerships. Which leads us into our guest today, which is a much-loved previous host of the Artemis podcast, Ashley Chance. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing good. Yeah, I guess uh, listening to Kelly, Kelly, it sounds like uh, you need to start a Women on the Wing chapter of Pheasants Forever over there in Wisconsin, <laughs> where you're at. She's have, already an Artemis we have a woman. <laughs> we have a women's chapter, uh, actually, in southern Wisconsin, and they, act- they had their own event the following Saturday. So, yeah, we should... Um, we need we need to link up more and and keep keep making the events larger i think or have more of them be able to put on more of them throughout the summer all the above for sure i mean ashley the the real thing here is we have to just make sure that you can make it there and i can make it there and uh hang out with kelly yeah no kidding yeah. so ashley our first question um is what are you up to now what's happening Well, a lot is happening. So I started my new role with Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever almost four months ago now. Um, And it has been a wonderful whirlwind. I, yeah, I've been learning so much and connecting with so many amazing people. I still live in Tennessee. I live in the Southeast. So I'm surrounded by Southern accents on a daily basis, but now I'm also surrounded by Midwest accents on a daily basis because so many of the people I work with um, are based in the Midwest, which is wonderful for me as a a native Midwesterner. But um, yeah, we I'll talk more about work, I guess, as as we progress here. But I also on the personal side of things, we moved um, just like an hour from where we used to live. So we live in a real town now. Uh, We've been here for about three weeks and we're selling our house in the hopes that we can buy a teeny tiny farm. (laughs) And uh, that's been an interesting process, at times stressful. Um, And hunting season is almost upon us. So I've been looking forward to that, trying to prepare a little bit um, amongst everything else that's been going on. And actually I'm going to go hunting with Mary, Mary Lynn uh, on Friday. We're going to go dove hunting and then I'm going to go dove hunting again on Saturday. (laughs) So I'm excited. That sounds fantastic. And congrats on that move and the new position. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it all is happening at once, which And Charlie started going to a preschool, which is new. It's just two days a week. um, So it's like a soft intro, but uh, that's been really great. How is that? How has it been going generally? Like, is she enjoying it? Is she, does she not like going? Are you doing okay with it? (laughs) It was rough in the beginning. You know, there were a lot of tears, um, but the people there, it's like a little crunchy Montessori place. So it's right up our alley and all the teachers there are really supportive and helped walk us through that process. And now she loves our teachers and it's fun to go pick her up. And then we go to the library or to the park and yeah, it's been good. It's been good. Awesome. Well, as you know, our, our opener for our podcast is what's in your freezer. Did you bring anything during the move in your freezer or did you try and eat it all before you left or uh, have you had the ability to do any hunting up until this point or up now? Well, we brought the whole freezer and all of its contents, um, which aren't (laughs) many. They're few at this point. So we're, we're eating up the last bits and bobs that exist out there, but we're getting ready for hunting season. The biggest thing in the freezer right now, honestly, is bird wings for training the dog and uh, the hide from my buck that I shot last year. I actually tried to take it over to a taxidermist a couple blocks away two days ago. And I got there and I had called and there was nobody there. And I wasn't even sure I was at the shop because it's just like a shed behind their house. So uh, I need to try that again. But that's the thing taking up the most space in the freezer at the moment. That's fair. All right. Have you tanned any of your own hides? I have. It's a lot of work and I want something that I can actually, I don't know if I should go the buckskin route and like make it jacket or boots or go hair on. I don't know, but I need to hit the easy button on this one and have somebody else do it. 
And are you going to do the design and the sewing? Yes, I am a sewer. (laughs) Seamstress. Not a professional. Yeah, I wouldn't say seamstress because I'm not a pro, but I have been sewing for some time now and enjoy it. And so, yeah, I make stuff. Awesome. My aunt is an avid quilter and she says she never calls herself a sewer because it's spelled like sewer. (laughs) And, And so she tries to avoid that. But anyway, huge digression. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so in your new role, we'd love to hear about what you're doing there, what it is, and uh, what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, um, what their mission is. Yeah, well, I guess, so let me back up. Uh, I'll start with the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So they, we are the Habitat organization. Um, so the focus of all of the work that's done is always coming back to putting more birds on the ground. Um, pheasants, quail, and then by way of that, creating, enhancing, um, and restoring upland habitat, or I guess upland communities in general. Um, so we have chapters around the country I think we have more than 750 chapters, I think right now. Um, So those are obviously members, volunteers that do a lot of hard work um, on the ground fundraising and hosting learn to hunt events and pollinator events and habitat um, events. And all the the unique thing about Presence Forever and Quill Forever is that all of the funds that are raised by chapters, it's up to them how they want to spend the money. So the money doesn't get siphoned off and sent to headquarters. It's up to the chapters to decide what they want to put that money into, um, which is a unique among conservation organizations. So um, yeah, there's a lot of dedicated people. Our staff is growing at an incredible rate. I think we have made it over 500 or are certainly going to this year. Um, so there's a lot of people that are a part of it and everyone that I've met thus far has been just wonderful. Um, my task, my actual job, the title of my title is the hunting heritage program manager. Um, and so I am running everything R3 for both organizations. Um, so all the learn to hunt events that happen around the country, whether it be led by staff or led by volunteers, chapter members, um, all the learn to shoot events. So Kelly, it sounds like you were probably teamed up with Britta Peterson for those uh, wing shooting events, or I guess the clay shooting events. I got to meet her for the first time yesterday. Um, so yeah, all that stuff is what I'm doing, which is, it's a lot. It's good, but it's a lot. And do you travel often? Um, not really. I mean, for meetings and stuff, and we have a really incredible series of learn to hunt events that are going to be happening this fall and winter that I'm going to be traveling just because I want to be at them. (laughs) I'm going to be trying to go to as many of those as I can. Um, that series. So it's six events that are uh, minority focused. We're hosting them in conjunction with minority outdoor Alliance. Um, so they are, multi-day weekend experiences where participants learn how to hunt upland birds. Um, And Darrell Smith, who is leading things on the Minority Outdoor Alliance side, helps bring conversations to the fore about what it means to be, you know, a person of color or religious minority or um, whatever the case may be in the upland space. And so it's a really really incredible opportunity to bring people together and make them feel like they belong because they do. Tell us a little bit about your background with upland birds and, and hunting. Have you, I, I know you, you got your master's and in, sorry, I, I was curious. Did you, did you finish your manuscript? It's 97.5% finished. I've, yeah, I need to push it over the finish line. Uh, it just hasn't happened in the midst of everything else, but that needs to happen. Um, yeah, my background with uh, hunting up and birds. So I started hunting pheasants in high school. Uh, I had a boyfriend at the time who 
did that. And so I was able to branch out of just big game is what I had hunted with my family, deer and elk. Uh, and back then, uh, when, when was that? 2008, 2007, I would say looking back on it, none of us knew what we were doing. We had a dog that was named Rocky because rocks for brains is how he got his name. Um, and he was like three quarters lab and then mystery the rest. Um, and he would just run around in front of us in the sloughs and, um, you know, on the edges of cornfields, flushing birds and we shot him. <laughs> so it worked out. Um, I went back, I guess it was last year to Minnesota on a hunt with, uh, my husband and Charlie and it was very different. It was very different. I was like, man, I remember this being so easy and I had pheasant hunted a little bit more between, you know, high school and now, but. Uh, mostly on my parents' property, which I knew really well. So it's kind of been a hodgepodge. Um, last year was also the first year that I went grouse hunting. Well, that I went grouse hunting where there are grouse. I grouse hunted in Tennessee a couple years before that, but there are not many here. Um, so I my introduction to upland hunting happened a long time ago, but I haven't pursued it heavily. I mean, if you count dove hunting, I've done that since, you know, the last six years and woodcock are always something that we go after, but there's just not a ton of them. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of sporadic, but we do have a bird dog. Mostly we use him for ducks in our previous life in Mississippi, um, but he's versatile. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting the opportunity to explore upland birds a little bit further. It sounds like I'm going to get the chance to maybe hunt some wild quail this year, which I'm excited about. Um, and I'd like to make it out West and get after some Valley quail or some other birds that, you know, don't occur where we are here. That's fantastic. Kelly, what's your background in upland bird hunting? I'm still just chuckling over here about rocks for brains, Rocky, the dog. I know. I think, of, <laughs> think about that poor, that poor flusher forever now. It sounds like he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do, Ashley. He was. He was a happy dog. A happy dog. He's <laughs> not revered. Uh, my background in upland hunting, uh, similar to Ashley, I grew up mostly deer and turkey hunting, uh, white-tailed deer and turkey hunting in Wisconsin. I did a little bit of duck hunting when I was younger with some high school friends and college friends, and then didn't maybe a little bit of pheasant hunting, and mostly in Wisconsin, pheasant hunting means released birds so different than chasing naturally reproducing pheasants, in my opinion, at least. I think most people would agree with that. <clears throat> uh, and then the bird dog upland aspect really didn't become a major part of my life until the past couple years, uh, where I got my first bird dog, a poodle pointer that I've talked about on the podcast before. She just turned two this August. It's going to be her second hunting season. Uh, and our main pursuits have been Woodcock and rough grouse. Um, we did do a Western trip last year. It was her first hunting season and like her first real adventure with wild birds during the hunting season. So we were chasing sage grouse and dusky grouse and in Wyoming. Um, and this year we're going either to North Dakota or Montana after sharp tails. So a little bit of everything peppered in and maybe even a quail trip somewhere towards the end of the you know, continental U.S. hunting seasons. So it's, I think once you get a dog and um, start chasing birds behind that dog, the game really changes. I mean, it becomes quite the obsession. I mean, similar to like, I remember picking up a bow when I was younger and then that quickly became an obsession. And then you get this other tool and a best friend known as your dog and you start following them around and seeing how marvelous they are at finding the species you're after. And uh, it becomes a huge obsession. So I've been blocking out like weeks and every weekend in October into early November for upland hunting, um, putting off as many work meetings as possible because there's only, there's only so much time. You only get so many falls behind this particular dog and any dogs to come. So, um, but yeah, it's been a relatively new pursuit for me and one that I totally understand having people getting people having a hard time getting into it. Um, it's really daunting. And I think especially for women that don't necessarily have a community of other people that will teach them or take them along. So Ashley, the stuff that you all are doing to help introduce folks to the upland space is really important. It's 
I find it, I found it even as a lifelong hunter more daunting than um, any, any other learn to hunt type environment that I've been around. I think the, the having the dog um, really needing to understand habitat and access, all of those things are really difficult and and big hurdles and barriers for folks to overcome. Yeah, for sure it is. So Kelly, I'm curious, does your dog have a, a suitable name or similar to Rocky is it, or, or is it something um, a little bit more? Oh, that's uh, so sad. <laughs> uh, my dog has, uh, my dog has a notable name. Is that, was that the question? So a name that's meaningful to me at least. So, uh, and she has a, uh, you know, as many dogs do. She's registered in the um, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association registry, NABDA. So she has a registered name that I picked and then her call name. And her call name is Leo, which is short for Leona after my grandma, Leona Van Beek, who was a little spitfire of a lady. And uh, I really, I really liked the idea of having a dog name that challenged people's um, biases about gender and gender associations and names. And then furthermore, her registered name is, she's from a kennel called Killbuck in Ohio. So you have to have that part in their name, depending on the, depending on how the kennel require, what what the kennel might require for their registered dog names. They're the second time through the alphabet for this kennel. So you have a two or a, you know, um, like a numerical, numerals the roman numeral two after killbuck and then her registered name needed to start with a y and it could be like a sequence of words because they were second time through the alphabet on y so her registered name is killbucks two yes queen leona because i also (laughs) wanted to give a nod to a nod to my lgbtq plus fam and again just challenging challenging people's biases about who's out here hunting and uh yeah, the fire that is in that dog for sure is represented by her name. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> that's hilarious. I that's fantastic. I, I very much approve. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the number, the amount of debate that went into the how you spell yes it was <laughs> it was entertaining. So if you, well, if how do you curious, spell it then? I decided to. <laughs> well. I decided to spell it only with one S because to me, you say you, you spend more time on the ah part. So it's Y A A A S in her registered name. But the amount of, the amount of debate that went into that was <laughs> expensive. Oh, that's good. That's great. Well, um, before we move on, I, um, I'm curious Kelly, have you, how long have you been involved with Pheasants Forever? And have you done, have you dabbled with Quail Forever as well? Really just Pheasants Forever, as I drink my coffee out of my Quail Forever mug this morning. Uh, a wannabe quail person. I've, I mean, I've been working alongside Pheasants Forever since, you know, I started my career in conservation, really. I haven't, I haven't worked for them, worked for the organization, but have worked alongside mostly their farm bill biologists for a long time. Um, and then also chapters there, there's a, an adopt a wildlife area program here in Wisconsin where, uh, organizations can adopt wildlife areas and do volunteer work on them. Pheasants forever stepped to the plate right away here in Wisconsin. And they were the first ones to officially adopt a wildlife area in my work unit back when I was working for the department. So, uh, and, and given my role with, grassland birds, mostly non-game grassland birds right now in my, in my professional life. Uh, we partner a lot with Pheasants Forever as the habitat organization, the habitat organization working at large scales to bring grasslands back. Uh, yeah. And then like Ashley said, uh, Britta Peterson, a gem of a person, another farm bill biologist from Wisconsin, um, has partnered with Artemis on many events we've done here since I've been an ambassador. Uh, yeah between the habitat work that we've done for our Artemis events and the wing shooting events that we just did. Um, great partners and really dedicated people. 
And Ashley, have you been involved with Pheasants Forever for a while or were you brought in more on the quail forever side? And, and frankly, what's the obviously different species, but um, what's the difference between the two? Is it the same company? Is it two different 501c3s? Yeah, it's so it's two organizations that are they're married, they're sister organizations. Um, so Pheasants Forever Inc., if you want to get down into the technical weeds, but a brief history, uh, Pheasants Forever was started in the 80s by hunters in a basement in Minnesota. Um, so it's very much, you know, that gritty grassroots people on the ground seeing a need and doing something about it. Um, and then Quill Forever began, I'm going to get the year wrong. I want to say 2005, but I might be wrong. Um, a, you know, a number of decades later. So Quail Forever is younger, um, but basically it's, you know, the difference is what it sounds like. Pheasants Forever is aimed at that uh, pheasant footprint primarily, but we do work all over the country and not, actually there's like some things I found like we've just done some mule deer work. And so really comes back to habitat and what, you know, where we can plug in with partners and deliver on the ground um, differences that way. So the Quail Forever footprint extends across part of the country. I mean, a brief history on quail, specifically bobwhite quail, um, is actually their historical range used to extend up into Minnesota and parts of Wisconsin. I actually saw a quail last October at my parents' house. I flushed a quail on the golf cart driving around the pond. <laughs> I know that's what it was. And I knew immediately that my husband wouldn't believe me. Um, Cause there, you're not going to like find a quail there anymore. It was probably a Penry's bird from somewhere a couple miles down the road, which is still a miracle to me that it made it that far alive. Um, but anyway, quail have a long history in the Southeast, um, Bob white quail. And they're really kind of, they're kind of known as like, historically the gentleman's bird to pursue. So uh, that is shifting, thankfully, um, but the bird has experienced incredible declines. So really over the last 300 years of the landscape changing, um, but you know, brought into sharp focus in probably the 1950s in, on into the 70s when the way that people farmed, the way that agriculture looked changed drastically with, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but increased mechanization and herbicide use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there used to be places, borders, hedgerows, fence lines where these birds could make a living um, and have cover protection from predators. And um, all that stuff kind of went away when we started farming edge to edge um, and really large scale. So the concept of like a fallow field where farmers would have to leave a plot, you know, for so long for it to be able to support um, crops again, just didn't exist, doesn't exist very much anymore. Um, so anyway, all that has led to really precipitous declines and to the point where it's it's kind of like what Kelly talked about pheasants in Wisconsin. It's gotten to that point in a lot of the Southeast where it's, it's hard to find wild quail in some places and um, people still do it. I mean, Georgia, parts of Tennessee, the whole, you can find them across the Southeast, but it's, it's not like it used to be for sure. Um, so there's a need there as well. And that's kind of what brought quail forever into existence. And I, I have forgotten your question now. <laughs> After my ramble. No, that was that was perfect, the background. I'm curious how you ended up getting into it. Mm, yeah. Well, I so we have kind of a family connection. Um, there is a local Quail Forever chapter here in Tennessee that started this intern program where they fund an intern to work on a kind of quail-focused wildlife management area. Um, my husband actually ended up being the first ever intern as part of that program. And that's really what launched his career. And our dog is named after that WMA. Um, and so it's still, it's a project that's ongoing. Um, there's an intern there right now. And so my husband is very much a quail person. He's been a member of quail forever for a long time. And uh, that was kind of the extent of my involvement until I got this job. <laughs> now, now I'm completely a part of it. 
That's awesome. That's yeah. I, I think it's, I actually really appreciate you going into detail about quail and, and how we've really um, removed their habitat completely. Do you know what the outlook is for a lot of the, for both for upland birds? Like what are we expecting and anticipating increased numbers? Are we seeing still a decline? Are we, and, and Kelly, you can oh. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that too. Yeah, Kelly may be able to speak more to this. Than, I mean, for pheasants, it's going to be like a very regional, local level, like based on weather conditions and things from year to year. Um, quail are, I mean, they need a lot of help. They need a lot of help. And we're working as an organization to try and provide that help. Um, but there's a lot of things working against us, just development, first and foremost, like the projections of how many houses are going to be built and population increase across their range in the next like 50 years is just, I mean, to see those maps is astonishing. Um, so that alone, and then you combine that with, you know, attitudes around prescribed fire and people's ability to utilize that as a management tool, um, invasive species. I mean, like, especially there's plants that are just brought on purpose sometimes, sometimes on accident, but it, it can be really difficult to carve out the needs of those birds on the landscape today. Yeah, 100%. It's, I'm I was just trying to think of, are there any, um, grassland slash brushland type resident game bird species that are stable to increasing right now. And I couldn't think of one. I mean, for the most part, long-term, long-term trajectories of all of these species are declines. You might have good years and then, you know, some bad years, but uh, what's, what's really, um, what's interesting about bobwhite quail in particular is that they were such a wide ranging species. Like Ashley mentioned, you could have found them in Minnesota, Wisconsin, all the way across to the Eastern shore of the U S and then all the way South. All the above for sure. And now we're going to hear a little message from our sponsors. Would you like fishing and hunting information and tips from experienced outdoor women? Want to learn about outdoor gear that works for you? Want inspiration and to try something new in the outdoors? Then subscribe to Adventurous, the only women's hunting and fishing magazine. Adventurous is a high quality print magazine you will be sure to love, and it also makes a great gift for other outdoor women and youth. Subscribe at adventurousmagazine.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm here with my co-host, Kelly Van Beek out of Wisconsin. I'm an, an Artemis ambassador out of Wisconsin. And uh, a prior Artemis employee, uh, Ashley Chance, who now works for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as their hunting heritage manager. Um, Ashley, one of the main reasons we brought you back on the podcast was to talk about a new initiative that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are um, hoping to promote. Could you give us a little background on that and what it is? Yeah, so I can't take any credit for the creation of this amazing tool. I just, it was two years in the making and I walked on the scene and I'm now tasked with sharing it with the wider world. Um, but I guess I would just cut right to the chase. So it's a, it's technically a course, but I have been calling it a film series because I envision it as uh, like upland bird hunting for Netflix, basically. Um, so it's this really wonderful uh, series of stories. So there's five hunters across the country that are showcased with a 25-ish minute film. And it covers 
their journey into the uplands. It dives into each of their unique cultures. Um, and then you actually go on a hunt with them for bobwhite quail, rough grouse, uh, ringneck pheasants, valley quail, uh, woodcock, and I think there's there's chuckers in there and sharp tails as well. Um, so it's it's like my now supervisor Colby Kerber actually came up with the idea at the end of the season. He was sitting around by the fire and he was just thinking like about all of his experiences in the field that fall and what if he could just bottle that up and share it with the world. And this was during COVID when it was hard to do in-person stuff. Um, and this is what was born of it. So there were a lot of partners on the project. Um, it was funded through a, a multi-state grant and Modern Carnivore is actually who filmed and produced the series. So it's like, I mean, there's custom illustrations that play out during it. And anyway, all of the films are housed within the structure of a course. So there's other additional um, stuff that you can go and do if you're interested in learning. But it's really just, I mean, it's not stuffy. It's engaging. It goes great with a couch and a drink. <laughs> so I would encourage everyone, new hunter, experienced hunter, I mean, even for myself, I've been hunting for uh, three decades now, I guess. Um, it was so cool to see the episode that's based in California and learn what it's like to be out in the desert pursuing valley quail, because I don't know anything about that. Um, super inspiring. And after watching that, I'm thinking about how I can plan a trip out there. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned this because in our last ambassador meeting, we were actually talking about um, bringing ambassadors together who have hunted in uh, various regions across the U.S. and having them collaborate and compare their stories and then bringing that and sharing that with the rest of everybody. So it's neat to hear that other organizations are doing um, similar things. And I'm I'm impressed that Pheasants Forever has um, crafted this for the larger audience. So where can folks get this and, and how would they go about um, this maybe learning journey? Yeah, so it's free. Um, it's been paid for by somebody else. So everyone else in the world can access it um, for free. And you can register for the course at howtohuntuplandbirds.org. You can also get to it through our landing page. And I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes um, for this episode. But basically, you go and input very basic, like your name and email, I think is all that I put on the registration page. Um, and then you're in. And you can pick and choose. Like if you're just interested in pheasants or you're just interested in grouse, you can just go through those sections or you can go through the whole thing. You can come back at a later time. You can rewatch it as much as you'd like. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an incredible resource for, like I said, experienced and new people alike. So I hope everyone takes advantage of it. That's fantastic. For somebody like Kelly, that's been hunting for uh, the majority of their life. How, I guess what sorts of, which portions and which series would you recommend? Yeah. I mean, I guess it would depend, it would depend on the person, like what, um, they had, you know, what their interests are and their previous experience. But the interesting thing about it is that when you watch one of the episodes, it's like, so I've been thinking a lot about this. Like when you first learn how to do something new, especially in the realm of hunting, you have to go do it a lot. And there's a lot that you observe or that you absorb just by osmosis, by being out in the field with somebody who's done it before, right? Like, I, and I speak for myself here, but when I'm out doing something new for the first time, I'm subconsciously trying to make myself look like the people who know what they're doing, right? So I'm taking cues on how to hold my gun, when to load it, how to walk, how to move through cover, um, you know, like, what kind of gear I'm wearing is probably based on what that person told me to wear, what I see them wearing. And that's the beauty of this is that the episodes encapsulate that. So it's kind of like, even if you've never done it before, you could show up to a group of strangers and fake it till you make it after having watched one of these. That's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, I guess even as an experienced hunter, there's always the opportunity to learn from others and, and, observe those new things even yeah just 
yeah, just by observation or small conversation. I don't know. I've always, I've always really enjoyed just being out and, um, and I'm glad that they've brought this into a film sort of perspective. So, um, yeah, what, I guess what else about the film? How many, so how many episodes or, um, snippets films did they produce in full? Yeah. So there's, like I said, there's five main films and then additional to that, there are other subsections that cover, um, things like, here, let me see. Then there's a bunch of lessons. So there's ringneck basics, rough grouse basics for all the birds, gray partridge, and then there's hunting equipment, clothing, shotguns, safety and care of your equipment, hunting dogs, pre-hunt prep, post-hunt responsibilities, and then hunting culture. Um, so there's a lot to explore. And again, just depending on what you're interested in. But I think what I would like to talk a little bit about are the people that were featured in this series. So in Minnesota, Kang Yang is a Hmong hunter. He's an adult onset hunter. I think he uh, used to have a really poor impression of hunting as a kid. And then as so often happens, he acquired a dog and shifted his perspective. Um, so his story is really interesting and hearing more about um, Hmong hunting culture in the context of his family is fascinating. Uh, Ruben Mata in California, he's a diesel mechanic. He lives in the city, you know, right on the coast um, and spends a lot of time chasing after valley quail. So it was really cool to see his story. And then basically you get to go back to his family's kitchen and cook the birds with them. So each film also has a cooking component. Uh, Darrell Smith in Georgia, he is a black uh, quail hunter and he has done a lot of work um, to revive some of the hunting traditions among African-Americans in the South and is a, just a wealth of knowledge on all things related to that. Amanda Dyer in Maine, she is actually the president of the uh, Rough Grouse Society chapter up there. Her I mean, family has been in Maine since the 1700s, so you get to learn about um, and her grandma, she still hunts with her grandmother, who's in her 80s. Um, so it's that's a really cool story. And Kayla Bendel in North Dakota is actually pregnant at the time of filming. Um, and so to see her out in the field with a massive belly <laughs> to navigate is uh, really wonderful, too. So, uh, yeah, I guess seeing all the hunters in their element and how diverse those elements are is a really wonderful thing. I'm thrilled that they've really um, pulled a, a multitude of viewpoints and people into into this. And I love that they uh, brought two sportswomen specifically that have both, yeah, that, that are at curious stages in their life, right? Having a grandmother at 80 years old and hunting with her and learning probably primarily through her. And then uh, a woman that's pregnant. I, I think that that's a question that many of our listeners um, – and most of the Artemis audience are curious about, especially um, those that are pregnant or are looking to have children. Um, Ashley, I know you've done some hunting while pregnant and you still hunt with Charlie. Um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I have, I have a lot of thoughts here. Um, I think number one, I would just stress that anyone in that phase of their life, do what works best for them. So I think don't get caught up in this idea that you have to hunt while pregnant or that you have to bring your kids with you um, into the field. And by extension, don't be afraid to do that if that's what you're driven to do. Um, I talked with my doctor when I was pregnant with Charlie about like shooting and if it could impact her hearing. And there's just not really any, you know, as with many things with women and their health, there's not a lot of research on it. So there's not enough data for them to say um, one way or another at what point in gestation that's a no-no or that it can have impact hearing. So I remember that I went duck hunting when I was probably five months pregnant with her. And then from that point on, I didn't do a lot of shooting um, just because I was nervous about it. She has no hearing issues. Thank goodness. Um, but aside from that, I mean, it's like anything. Like, If you want to be active, if you want to be physical and be out there, then do it. I can remember trying to grouse hunt in Tennessee with my husband when I was like seven, 
probably six, well, I don't know, maybe five months. I don't remember, but I just got stuck in that thick cover and started crying because I was just emotionally wrung out and physically couldn't do what I had previously been able to do with ease at that point. Um, and so I think being gentle with yourself and recognizing that things are probably going to look a little bit different. And that extends definitely into like after Charlie was born, I shifted my expectations and goals as they relate to hunting. So it wasn't so much for me anymore about killing something. I mean, it was, but the, my focus was quality time with my daughter in the outdoors. And so that helped in the moments where she wasn't quiet or had had enough before I did. Um, yeah, help me get through those times without getting really frustrated or upset. What are some of those notable changes that you, you observed in your pregnancy? You mean physically? Yeah. Yeah. Physically, like, like what sorts of uh, new things did you explore so that you, um, so that you could still do the things that you wanted to? Oh, well, I remember one thing that really struck me. So Charlie was born in May and I went turkey hunting with my husband that April. And he's like a GI Joe when he hunts. Like it's, you know, and, and our whole hunting career together, I've just like tried to keep up with him because I don't know, that's what I thought I should do. And I can remember we hit the ground, we hit the woods and we're going to go turkey hunting. And it's like the mountains, East Tennessee he just takes off and in no time he's like 500 yards in front of me booking it to wherever in his brain he thought we needed to go to get turkeys and I was like see you later (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll be here you and you circle back in a you know few hours because I am not interested in doing that and also not really physically able so I think um kind of coming into my own in terms of like approaching hunting the way that felt right for me in that moment and any other moment um, was a revelation that has been valuable to me moving forward. Do you have any gear tips for women that are pregnant like throughout the, yeah, throughout their gestational period? Oh my gosh. I have. So at one point in Artemis, we were talking with, I don't know if it was Proist or some other clothing company. And I was like, we need maternity hunting pants. Like we need basically, I know they have leggings now and stuff for women hunting. I've never used them, but, but yeah, use a, like a hairband to extend your pants. Of course, that's like rule number one. Um, just dress in a way that you can pee quickly and easily because there's a lot of that. Um, and I think I wish that there were waiters that fit pregnant women because there came a time when I couldn't get my waiters on anymore. Um, so I think just, yeah, in general, I mean, I've always kind of hunted with hand-me-down stuff. I don't have really any fancy gear outside of like my shotgun and I guess my bow. Um, but in terms of the clothes I wear, like some of it is stuff from when Dawn was a kid, like that's the jacket I wear. It's my favorite jacket. Um, and then some of it, like my hunting pants for when I was like 15, because my whole childhood, my dad thought I needed to buy things that were three sizes too big. So Um, like that stuff still, and I think I'm on my second pair of boots ever. Well, I have multiples now, but all that is to say, you don't have to buy expensive, specialized, fancy stuff to make it work. If you can find it and you can afford it, go for it. Um, by all means make things simple, but just bring water and snacks and comfortable clothes. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I, yeah, I don't know or actually you probably know, have we covered that in a podcast previously? We've touched on it. I think uh, a lot of the podcast was informed by where I was at in my life. So when I was pregnant or after Charlie was born, we talked with like Becca Garris and who still, I think is a wonderful resource for navigating hunting with kids. Um, And then Melody, I'm going to forget her last name. She's a hunter in Minnesota. She hunts with a traditional bow um, and has, navigated four kids, um, as part, part of that. So we touched on a little bit and I know, uh, Emily Lettergerber, uh, talked 
and wrote a blog about being pregnant. That's probably still up there and maybe did a podcast episode as well, hunting while pregnant. Nice. Well, we'll definitely link the, link our show notes to those as well so that folks can check them out. So um, one other thing that I was hoping to touch bases with you on and, and share with our audience, particularly the women in, in Tennessee, is this awesome hunting lease that you were able to, during your time here with Artemis, um, snag. And so I was wondering if you could share uh, how how that came about, whose idea it was, how it came to fruition, and, um, and then I can wrap things up with um, kind of where we're going from here with it. Yeah, I would, I'm so excited about this. Um, I also want to talk about our Hunter Mentor Pledge oh, before we close, but that'll just that. take a minute. So the least, the least, the least. So one of the things that I have found in my hunting journey, and I think is supported pretty well at this point um, with data, is that one of the big barriers a lot of people face in hunting, whether they're new or just n- new to a place, is access um, to a place to hunt. And you know, that can mean a lot of things that can mean actually having land that you can go hunt on or understanding how to find those places or feeling safe in them um, and confident in how to navigate them. But access um, as a category can be a big barrier for a lot of people when it comes to hunting. And when I thought about the Southeast, yeah, it's like it's mostly privately owned and hunting leases are one of the ways that a lot of people gain access to places to hunt. So it's pretty common to pay for um, a membership to a lease on an annual basis, or, I mean, some of them are like decades old. Um, And so you just pay and then, you know, each one has different rules about how you can use it. Um, But there's, anyway, that's like the standard way I would say outside of the, um, public lands that do exist is to be a part of a private hunting lease. And when I thought about women in the Southeast and access, it, I was like, what if there was a lease that was all women? Like, that would be cool. (laughs) Um, And so I decided to try to do that in Tennessee and um, with a little tenacity and some uh, writing some blind letters to properties that I found on Onyx that I thought would be suitable. Um, I got a hit, somebody who had raised his three daughters in the outdoors and um, hunting alongside of him and also happened to work for um, a timber company that owned a big plot of land, got back to me and we were able to find a piece of property that would work. And so, yeah, the project is going on in my absence, which makes me so happy to see and I, I'm seeing it's the first all-women hunting lease ever. I could be wrong, but until somebody steps up and tells me I'm wrong, I'm just going <laughs> to go with that. Um, I think it's just going to be an incredible way to learn and for women to develop as hunters. Um, I, I hope that everyone on the lease won't be brand new, and I hope that everyone won't be ultra-experienced because I think that, yeah, it'll be a really cool place to form connections and learn. Agreed. I was wondering if you would share a little bit more about um, Steve and how um, he kind of vetted Artemis. I really like that story too. Yeah. So Steve, uh, Steve is the guy who I wrote a letter to. I think I wrote probably 30 letters, um, which to my mind, isn't that many really to be able to make this happen. So that's just like an aside. If you're out there looking for private land to hunt, don't be afraid to go on Onyx and scope the scene and then write letters to people. Um, anyway, Steve, oh, he called Jody Dixon. He, so he had been on a doll sheep hunt in Alaska and he went on the Artemis website and saw Jody, uh, her contact information up in Alaska. And so he called her to, and he's like a very, he's a wonderful guy and he's very, um, I would say astute and detail oriented. So he called Jody to just kind of get the skinny on the program and she uh, gave Artemis rave reviews. And so after talking with her, he felt confident in reaching out to or responding to me. Um, and from there, we talked back and forth about what my goals for the project were. And I ended up going out and riding around with him on the property for the better part of the day, which was wonderful. Um, learned more about it, learned more about him, told him a lot more about 
myself and Artemis and yeah, it's, I guess he was happy with <laughs> what I told him because here we are. Which is an awesome place to be. I know. I, so in talking to the Tennessee ambassadors, we've ch- chatted a lot about um, food plots and, and what we'll do with this acreage. Can you give, um, given your expertise and background, can you give us some uh, information on like what food plots are? When do you plant them? What do you usually plant, at least in Tennessee? Because in the West, we don't do this. I, this is completely new for me. And I've learned a ton from our ambassadors. And it just, yeah, there's always something new to glean from other people. I love it. Yeah, I definitely want to hear Kelly's thoughts on this. Because when I moved down to Mississippi for graduate school, I immediately was working on about 80,000 acres of privately owned land that was managed for primarily deer and turkey and to some extent quail. And it was like food plots here, food plots there. And I remember telling one of my committee members, I was like, this, what people plant stuff for wildlife to eat. Like I come from farm country in Minnesota, where at least growing up, you don't want wild things to eat your crop. Exactly. That's not a, it's the opposite situation. Um, And so it was completely new to me at the time. Since then, obviously, I've learned a lot more about it. Um, So food plots are big in the Southeast. And yeah, Kelly, what what are they like in the Midwest now? Oh, man, the rabbit hole uh, that we could go down on food plots. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the, the whitetail world has really blown up with this concept of food plots and concentrating animals in areas that make essentially make them more killable, really. I mean, that they'll put animals in spots that give you better opportunities to, to harvest them, um, to have good shot opportunities. And for the most part, I'd say where people are, what I witness, I don't, I don't personally plant any food plots. Um, what I see people doing is they're planting relatively unique food sources compared to the typical agricultural crops that you're finding in the landscape. So sure, people plant like soybeans and field corn as a, as a food plot, but they're moving more towards um, things that are favored by whitetails depending on the season. So, um, you know, they'll maybe have something in particular that they plant that's going to provide really good quality forage during the summer, and then it'll die back by the fall. And some people then are even planting stuff now that's going to green up going into the fall. So like those things like the you hear you might hear people say like clover plots or brassicas. Brassica is actually a scientific name, uh, but uh, or turnips or what you know whatever you can spend many dollars on food plot plantings. And uh, I what I would suggest to folks that are um, relatively new into the hunting space don't have a lot of time to be to do a lot of the land management stuff is that there are definitely ways that you can create the edge habitat with quality natural forage that whitetails prefer without going like hog wild on, you know, eighth of an acre, quarter of an acre food plots. But um, there, yeah, you'll definitely hear it get talked about um, in the whitetail hunting space for sure on private property in the Midwest. And even to some extent for turkeys too, people are starting to create plantings that maybe they'll burn off for turkeys because turkeys really like burned areas and, and will, you know, are attracted to unique food sources, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an Eastern thing, Carly. I mean, it's, we have enough water to grow a lot of stuff. (laughs) So (laughs) that's part of it and rich and rich soils, but the amount of, yeah, the amount of time and money and effort, I mean, people will do soil sampling, they'll put fertilizer and spray weeds on these food plots and all that kind of stuff. It's like growing a crop. I mean, if if you want to do it well, if you want to have a successful food plot, frequently you grow it like you would a crop and some people even up here actually I don't know what they do in the southeast but they'll like put electric fence around it during certain parts of the year because they have so many deer that they need to keep them out in order for it to last until the hunting season so that they'll actually be using the food plot during the hunting season so it's just really fascinating from a psychological standpoint like the extent we're going to to try to get critters in front of us. It is. And Kelly, I so appreciate you making that point that like the main purpose of food plots 
is hunter opportunity. Like that's what it is. And nutritionally, 99% of the time, you're not doing much with a food plot. Um, but it's, it's something that there's been a lot of marketing around and I'm not saying like no one should do food plots, but I think just recognizing that like the purpose of it is to increase visibility of animals, increase accessibility to them and the opportunity to get a shot. What is the difference between what, what do you see as the difference between planting food plots versus baiting? Sorry. I'm so sorry. Carly (laughs) asking Asking the hard questions. Hot button question. Yeah. Kelly, you want to go or you? <laughs> uh, I think that's up to each individual to decide, honestly. Uh, you know, and and depending on the state you're in, they might actually have laws about it. You know, for example, in a state like Wisconsin, where we have a lot of CWD, chronic wasting disease, and we have many areas that are, quote, you know, no baiting, that does not exclude food plot planting. It just excludes like very specifically placed piles of grain or apples or something like that you can fit in gallon buckets or, or, you know, barrel drums or something, but it does, at least in Wisconsin. And I don't, I'm not familiar actually with other, with other parts of the Eastern U S um, food, food plot specifically. Again, and we're just talking about like, um, this is really whitetail focused. There's a whole yeah. aspect of food plots too that goes along with migratory bird hunting ducks in particular, and that definitely has some regulations around it that are federal law. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think it just it depends on what's in your food plot too. Like you know, what is to me for, for me personally, whether or not I would consider it quote baiting. I definitely I definitely think that you know if you put if you dig a trench and put a whole bunch of crack corn in there. Yeah, I call that baiting. Um, what I call f- most food plots baiting, maybe you're you're certainly concentrating animals. The intent the the intent is to concentrate animals, which is really what you're doing when you bait. But is it maybe it's um, uh, what is the what is the word uh, semantics? But there are there are there are cases where it's there are laws actually specifying what is what is baiting and do food plots fall into that? Yeah, I think, Kelly, at least from my own experience in the Southeast, food plots do not qualify as baiting in 99% of cases, or maybe 100, um, certainly related to whitetails. Um, and, and you're right in that you're concentrating animals when you have food plots. So from an ethics perspective, if you want to get into baiting and ethics, like up to the individual, like Kelly said, but from a disease perspective, which I think we should always be looking at, um, you are concentrating animals first and foremost. I think the distinction between a pile of bait or corn or whatever and a food plot is the same distinction as looking from the same ice cream cone or eating in the same cafeteria. And that's how I would think about it. Um, I think that's yeah, worth keeping in mind in, in, in these discussions or even just anybody thinking about it from that, from a disease perspective. Thanks. I, I feel, I, I feel fortunate to be able to lean on you all to, um, given your knowledge on, on these uh, challenging topics, I think, but um, valuable topics to, to chat with and, and especially educating, right, folks that are living in different regions um, that may go and hunt elsewhere that allows for food plots or baiting. I think that's that's helpful. So thank you. Can I uh, talk about did, the winter method pledge? Oh, yeah, we definitely need to talk about that. Okay. I'm going to make it quick. So uh, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever have this thing called the Hunter Mentor Pledge, um, which basically is the goal is just to get people to bring new folks out hunting with them. So you could sign up on our webpage. Um, Carly, I'll send you the link to put in the show notes, but basically what it is, is you take the pledge. So you sign up, commit to taking a new or lapsed hunter into the field with you this season. And then when you're out hunting with said person, uh, take a photo or a short video and you can send it back into us with a, you know, a recap of your hunt, a paragraph or two, um, of what that experience was like. And then you are entered to win a number of prizes. Uh, the biggie being a guided upland bird hunt for two. Um, so 
please take the pledge and bring somebody out with you. Um, and yeah, there might be a, a hunt, a paid for hunt in the works for you if you do that. Awesome. Thanks, Ashley. Um, all right. You guys ready to move? Are you both ready to move into hits and misses? All right, Ashley, yes, what have it. you been aiming for and how is it going? Uh, okay, so I'm going to be brutally honest here. I am in the biggest shooting slump of my life, um, specifically wing shooting. So I can hit a still target, no problem. Very good at that. <laughs> but over the last, honestly, year and a half, and really in this moment right now, I am struggling hard to hit clays. Um, I'm going to go, I've talked with a few folks about it. I've taken some video of myself shooting and as with most stuff, I think it's a mental thing. Um, and so I'm trying to navigate it and come out the other side and I'm going to go, like I said, dove hunting a couple times here over the next week and hopefully start to overcome some of what I've been experiencing. But basically, yeah, I've been missing. <laughs> I'm curious, I'm curious later on, like what you end up, yeah, what, what you find the cause to be on that. So keep us, keep us tuned on, on how you end up solving that issue. Cause, uh, we wish you luck in your, your future hunting endeavors and, um, hitting future clays. So, all right, Kelly, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Oh man. Um, I think the biggest thing going into hunting season that I'm thinking about is, is my dog ready? And I feel like I haven't quite done enough to get the dog ready, both from like a conditioning standpoint. And I really wanted her to be more steady going into the season, but we're going to go, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to go and see what happens. So maybe a miss, maybe a hit to be determined, but we put in a lot of work this summer, just not as much as I was hoping for, but yeah, it's, it's, it's time. It's time, ladies. It follows upon us. Awesome. And um, lastly, well, it looks like we're running a little bit low on time. So um, I think we can go ahead and bid farewell. Ashley, thank you for being on the Artemis podcast. Kelly, thank you for joining me as a co-host. I learned so much and um, it's just a pleasure always talking to both of you. So we hope you're having a great week. And until next time, be bold, stay curious and get outside. I think that that's going to go ahead and wrap up our podcast episode. 